You're listening to KOOP Hornsby Austin 91.7 FM and on the web at koop.org. Welcome to Issues for Your Tissues, the definitive discourse on reproductive health and well-being with your host, Katie Vitale. The views and opinions expressed on Issues for Your Tissues may not necessarily reflect those of co-op, its board of directors, or anyone else anywhere else. The information offered is not a substitute for the advice of a licensed medical professional, which I am not. Thanks for tuning in to Issues for Your Tissues. Welcome back to Issues for Your Tissues. I'm your host, Katie Vitale. I am, you know, you guys, you've been listening. I'm always excited to be joining you on Thursday nights here in Austin, Texas. You might be listening in Austin at 91.7 FM, or you could be tuned in anywhere in the world on koop.org. You could also be tuned in at Radio Free America, where the show will air for two weeks uh, after today or after now the now now and it will also be available to you in podcast form at itunes or on the blog the issues for your tissues blog and links for all of these things are available to you at the koop.org the co-op website so all you have to do is go to co-op.org in fact if you're streaming right now it's really easy to open another tab and find yourself at the schedule and click on issues for your tissues and then you'll find all of the issues for your tissues goodies uh, for your, you know, available for consumption at your leisure in between the shows. Uh, I'm, uh, I know that it's been a tough week for all of us. That's an understatement, I must say. 
and we are, <laughs> we're going to get to all of it in due time, I promise. But today, I wanted to take just, just a moment, or actually take the hour, to, to kind of review, recap, give a, po- a post-mortem on the special session and everything that happened and is going to happen because of it. Um, and, you know, within reason, we, we can't, we can prognosticate, but remember that, that things, things can still get weirder in Texas. So to that, to this end, I've invited a couple guests to talk to us about it. Uh, in the studio with me, I have Mary Tuma, who is the women's health reporter at, uh, at the Austin Chronicle. You can find her work, uh, it linked onto the issues for your tissues, Facebook page, which is also linked to coop.org and, you can also find her uh, at austinchronicle.com. Uh, my other guest is Dr. May Wynn. Dr. Wynn is, uh, uh, practices in, um, in Houston area and has written a number of uh, op-eds for the Houston Chronicle, one of which I read and was immediately compelled to reach out to her because I, I thought it was, it was pretty fitting. Uh, Dr. Wynn wrote a piece about uh, asking how is it easier to get a gun than an abortion in the state of Texas? So uh, work from both of my guests will be linked onto the Issues for Your Tissues Facebook page uh, over the course of the evening. So if you need an interactive experience and coop.org isn't enough for you, you are welcome to go to that page and read up on some of the things that they've written. So I wanted to say thank you so much, Dr. Wynn, for joining us tonight. Thank you so much for having me. Of course. Um, let me just start off. What, when did you, uh, <laughs> when did you um, start writing about public health needs and the situation? Was it something that you did before you started practicing or after you started practicing and realized that things are pretty rough in Texas? You know, it, uh, I've been in practice for a couple of years and realized you know, something was really missing from uh, my life. And that's what I realized that, you know, in medical school, I've been an activist and involved with the American Medical Student Association. And so we were always, you know, focused on issues about underserved care, rural health and disparities and GLBT issues. And I realized that, you know, that kind of fell off once I got into my residency training and uh, ended up getting into this uh, advocacy fellowship, the National Physicians Alliance, which is a multi-specialty organization, different doctors who all care about these issues that, like I described from medical, medical school experiences, um, and that's where I really learned how to kind of channel some of my anger into writing opinion pieces. Well, I, to me, it didn't seem so much, well, yes, there is some, I guess you could say it was anger, but it seems like just pointed statements and objective facts that you're sharing with people when you ask the questions that you do. Uh, in your recent piece, you talked about some of the things that were going on in this special session. Uh, what, what do you think was most striking? I know that not everyone, like, you know, most people have a lot of other things going on, like their, of course, their practices or their full-time jobs of whatever nature and aren't able to uh, see all of it. But what for you was, what were some of the highlights for you? Um. It's it's so hard. There's just so much news coming at us these days that it's really hard to keep track. But I, following the special session, being called specifically to 
bring back some of these bills that would continue to regulate and restrict this medical procedure that is safe and legal just boggles my mind. And, you know, I feel like a lot of, you know, people say doctors don't like being told what to do. And I think that that's widespread among a lot of different, you know, industries. It's not just doctors. But it really bothers us when it impacts the patient in such a way. Because, you know, the, the residency training I went through, we were actually trained on essential comprehensive women's health services. And I know that's not common everywhere. It's not even common among necessarily the OBGYN obstetric gynecology training in the state of Texas. Um, and if they're not getting trained to do it, then who will be able to? So it was just a mix of all these things that the policies I see being um, proposed in Texas that have no scientific basis. That is just what really, really bothered me. And just they, I don't know if these people have come out and talked to women who've had to face these decisions and realize how much harm that these policies can bring. Yeah, that's that's a point that I don't think many people get. And Mary, when you talk about this, uh, we, it, you know, you covered the special session and the things that went on in depth. Um, what do you think stuck out in your mind most about the the lack of scientific of, of evidence or the lack of understanding or awareness of things that happen during pregnancy? Right. I mean, um, well, thanks, Katie, for having me on, first of all. But yeah, um, these these lawmakers, many of them male um, lawmakers, um, could not answer some basic questions about reproductive health care. For instance, one one uh, moment sticks out in my mind. Um, Representative um, John Smithy, who is the author of the um, abortion insurance bill, which I can talk about further later, um, was asked um, by a fellow lawmaker if he could undergo a hysterectomy which, as you know, is the um, procedure to remove um, part or all of the uterus. Once again, he's a male, and he said, I don't know. I'm not sure. So that really gives you the the baseline of what we're working with in terms of um, things being rooted in um, uh, facts, medical science. Yeah, that one is sticking out for me, too. Um, That was an interesting line of questioning because people were saying, oh, I don't want to pay for an abortion. But you know what? Women are paying for... um, ED medications and prostate exams, and even though we'll never get them and may or may not be for them, I'm not going to stop somebody from using the insurance that we all pay into to get that. Like, my job isn't to get in your business, and it seems like that's the opposite of all these guys' jobs, to get in everyone's business. Uh, Dr. Nguyen, when uh, people are circumventing the advice of the American Medical Association, the American College of Obstetrics and Gynecology, of um, the American Psychiatric Association, uh, all these organizations that have been in practice and and learning and working together to improve and perfect the the, the art of their practices. Uh, like, what, what do you think, or how do you see that changing the nature of the organizations? Because I don't remember... Or maybe I just wasn't aware. I don't remember these organizations lobbying as much or speaking out as much on political measures as they are now. Is that just because of the intrusion, you think? Or just that it's it's becoming really heavy-handed? Or, or what do you think it is that is affecting that kind of participation? I, I'm hopeful that they're just kind of moving to catch up with the times. I, I think sometimes organized medicine can be very conservative in 
where they want to stick their necks out and where they want to spend political capital. Um, I, I think that's what makes it really challenging because they want to be able to sit at the table to help make decisions about some of the healthcare policy, but they don't also don't want to anger any of the you know legislators. They don't want to you know throw their hat in this time and then maybe get slapped down for something else they want in the future. So I feel like that's a big challenge, and that's something you know I kind of think a little bit about when I'm writing these kind of pieces and tweeting things out about things that I care about because uh, there have been stories about uh, you know people who have maybe lost their jobs over some of these uh, things that they've done or said in their personal time but are somehow end up getting tied back to their employer even though it doesn't reflect their employer's opinions at all and maybe employers don't want to you know, be working with someone who can end up bringing in a lot of controversy. Right. And it seems like especially uh, the larger employers like uh, hospitals and um, uh, healthcare groups or even insurance companies, it seems like anytime uh, one of the larger places goes out or somebody from one of the larger employers goes out and says something publicly, that there's, <laughs> there's just so many more people who can be effective. And, and like you said, it seems like they, they're moving from that conservative um, stance. So right now in Texas, doctors have to say some pretty untrue lie at their patients and are forced by law to do so. Um, do, you, do you expect or do you see in the future any time when other practices or other procedures could come with some sort of legislative uh, lie or set of lies that need to be um, need to be shared with patients. Like, is there is there any other procedure you see that could be impacted by by something like this? I think this is such a lightning rod issue, and it, it's really frustrating how this procedure is treated differently compared to other procedures that are you know, at about the same level of risk and um, intensivity. Um, I, I mean, uh, maybe if we came, maybe if we came up with some other way to to legislate women's bodies, that will come out with more legislation. Mm-hmm, um, mm-hmm. I, I mean, I just can't imagine, you know, legislators saying, "Okay, before you get a colonoscopy." you need to know exactly, you know, all the risks that can happen with this and the fact that if you don't do this, you could end up with, you know, this happening. Um, I, 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 I'm racking my brain. I'm, I'm really not sure what other medical procedure we would try to treat in the same way. Yeah, well, I, the only reason I ask is because I'm thinking, like, we have a lot of doctors like yourself who are being outspoken and standing up against lies like this, but many others are quiet on the subject, and, and I don't know if it's just because they don't practice in it or they don't want to uh, alienate some of their patients or any other people in their practice if they're in a group or some other reasons, but... Uh, I would I would like to think that all doctors would object to, and not just all doctors, all people who are experts in their field, who have taken many years of study and, and residency or internships or apprenticeships or journeymanships or any of these things, uh, would object to legislators coming in and telling them that, that they need to do something different and contrary to what they know to be right. Um, I, I just want to take a quick moment to remind listeners you're tuned into Issues for Your Tissues, 
My guests tonight, Maine Nguyen, who is a family physician interested in health policy, public health, social justice, and wellness. Uh, you can find her on Twitter at B-I-C-M-A-Y. And my other guest is Mary Tuma, who is the women's health uh, reporter at the Austin Chronicle. You can find her on Twitter as well at Tuma Time. Uh, and, you know, if you want any, if you have any questions about things specific to bills in the special session, you can email them to katie at coop.org and I can share them with our guests tonight. Uh, we'll have Dr. Nguyen on for about 15 more minutes. Uh, and then Mary is, is here through the rest of the hour. So, you know, if you have questions, now's the time. So katie at coop.org. Um, Mary, when we talk about, when we talk about the, uh, the special session, there were three, right, three bills that we were really keeping an eye on as far mm-hmm. as abortion rights. Yeah. And you had mentioned uh, that were three negative bills. Yes. <laughs> like, there were other, there were some good ones. But we had the insurance, right? Yes. Uh, which I don't even want to call rape insurance anymore because it's not just for rape, right? Right, right. Um, that uh, really applies to you know, any, any woman that becomes pregnant. All, even if you don't become pregnant and you think, you, like, you have to consider what your rape chance is or what, exactly. what the chances are of you. Like, you don't know. You can't be made to know that stuff. Exactly. It's um, pretty silly for, to force women to predict and anticipate um, being raped, right? Um, and, and having to, under this bill, purchase supplemental insurance to get it covered. Um, so it kind of defies the, the purpose of, of, you know, having insurance in the first place. Uh, right. And then we had the Planned Parenthood funding blockage bill. And, and I don't know, did that, one, did that one get signed yet? That is the one out of the, th- out of the uh, three that uh, did not uh, pass. I'm shocked. So. <laughs> this is my shocked face, I you mean, guys. The state has already taken virtually every measure to defund Planned Parenthood. This was just sort of a, another kind of shot at uh, banning um, abortion affiliates and providers. It was really a shot here at the uh, Planned Parenthood on East 7th Street, which is not an abortion provider, but provides preventative health care to the Austin community. Um, and the bill author admitted that on the floor. Um, so we can at least, you know, um, be happy that that one did not get passed for, for Austin residents as well. Right. And then we had the, uh, I call them enhanced because I'm thinking about enhanced sentencing, but en- <laughs> enhanced reporting requirements. Yes. For for uh, abortion providers, right? Uh, yes, and a, a senator Sylvia Garcia had another name for it, which was bureaucratic bullying um, of True. abortion yeah, providers. I hear that. Yeah, it's it's a over over kind of regulation or over, overburdening of providers with um, very personal and detailed data of of patients. You know their their race, their marital status, and and it, it'd be a quicker reporting. So it'd be in um, seventy two hours versus thirty days. Um, and if and if a health provider provider um, uh, is in violation, they get stopped with a $500 fine each day. So there's some pretty hefty penalty there. Um, and the Texas Medical Association also was kind of critical of, of, um, of this one. And y'all were talking before about, you know, medical organizations um, throwing their two cents in. So they actually did with this one. I'm, I'm glad they did. Um, Dr. Nguyen, when we're talking about uh, these reporting requirements for doctors, I know that 
doctors have a lot of work that they're taking care of patients directly and providing care already, and they rely on office staff and other medically licensed professionals in their practice to assist them with a lot of the day-to-day duties. And I don't know if if listeners really, like, I'm sure they're all smart and good-looking, so they understand, but for the brand new ones who might not yet be smart and good-looking, could you tell them a little bit more about how, why this is such a burden for doctors to have to be filling this out within 72 hours rather than uh, as they had been able to, having staff, um, you know, trained and in many cases licensed staff to do things for them? This, I, I just, let me ask first, Mary, do you know, did they say why, how this bill would help improve quality or safety for pregnant women? Well, that's a really great question, doctor. Um, No, they really couldn't answer that. Senator Donna Campbell on the floor insisted this measure was to improve um, uh, data gathering because her her reasoning was that there were so, so few abortion complications um, that that must be that must be false information. There must be more uh, complications that just aren't getting uh, reported. So that was the logic. Wow. Yeah, it seems like a fishing expedition. It is. I mean, number one, completing a pregnancy and carrying a fetus to term is actually more dangerous than having an abortion. Um, I know I cited some of these numbers in that last, the most recent op-ed that I wrote in the Houston Chronicle. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, there are very few, I think I said that there were, when I looked up the research, I think there were like four deaths of women around the country that was reported, I think, in 2012 or the most recent year that we had data available. Mm -hmm. And, you know, in Texas, we have terrible numbers of maternal morbidity mortality, which means women have to be very healthy in order to get pregnant and carry a fetus to term. And these women are dying shortly afterwards from complications from the pregnancy. And that number is up around 135 to 140 over the last, um, I think it was like 2012 to 2014, 2015. Um, so to answer your question, Katie, the, the administrative burden on physicians is kind of what drives a lot of us crazy. Um, there's a lot of, we, we went to medical school to take care of patients and people and not to become paper pushers and secretaries. There are some doctors who just are so tired of all the electronic medical record and the documentation because sometimes this takes longer than the actual face-to-face time with the patient. And, you know, I work as a family physician, as a primary care doctor, and, you know, the end of the day I have to spend an extra, you know, amount of time just finishing charts and responding to med refill requests or phone calls or look at forms that were faxed over from this uh, home health care organization to, to approve physical therapy for a patient. Um, I, last week in clinic, one of our nurses was told that, oh, the doctor needs to write in her number, her identification number on this form. And the nurse asked, oh, well, can I just do that for her? And they said no. Um, And this is really hard. I mean, I've worked in systems before that were public, and I didn't have to spend as much time making sure my documentation was perfect. 
um, for billing purposes, but now I'm in a different system where we are seeing a variety of payers, insurance companies, Medicare, Medicaid, and you know, I can tell you I spend a lot more time doing this now compared to when I was working in a much simpler system. Right. That it, it just seems like it's going to cost doctors more time, or it does from what you're saying. And of course, your time, everyone's time is finite, and so it has to come from somewhere, and it's going to come from uh, likely either your sleep and or some combination of that and your ability to see more patients, which that's why you got into medicine, I'm, I'm assuming. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. So in your in the piece that you just wrote recently in the in the Houston Chronicle, and again people can uh, link around from coop.org to get to that article, or you can Google. I'm not going to stop you from doing that directly. Uh, you were talking about not just uh, that pregnancy was more dangerous than than an abortion, but that uh, just trying to show people what things were like before Roe v. Wade before legal abortion across the United States. And I, I don't know that people who supported these bills really understand or have an idea of what that might look like or, or, or think that that is something that could happen, but it really, it really is. And uh, it's really moving in that direction of, you know, women trying to self-terminate and, you know, buying medication on the Internet or even in some cases taking more drastic measures, um, how, how do we impress upon others that there are, there are negative health outcomes from passing things like these bills we saw in special session? So as a physician, uh, someone who likes to use science and data to make decisions about, help patients make decisions about their, their care, I know that that is something that isn't always very persuasive. Um, sometimes people's eyes just kind of glaze over when you start talking about uh, data and numbers and statistics. Um, so I think the most helpful thing is to tell stories. Um, you know, and that, I, I think that's, it's also, I think, important to, to learn and study and learn from history because if you talk to a doctor in the time before Roe v. Wade was passed, you will hear stories of women who ended up trying so many different methods to try to induce their own abortion, their own termination, and how much harm it could bring, and women dying because they would end up using some method and maybe contracting a terrible infection from whatever they stuck inside their body and showing up the hospital so sick, so late, that there was really nothing else that the medical um, professionals could do for them. And I think for some of these doctors who maybe had that experience, I think it's important for them to speak out. Um, using more modern day times, I mean, there are every, we all have stories, especially people who have worked in labor and delivery, worked in providing prenatal care and um, delivering women and babies. Uh, there, there are situations where the medical problems that are occurring either with the fetus or with the mother are so significant that it puts the mother's life at risk. Um, I can think of some, some small examples from when I, I did my family medicine training is that, you know, there are some women who maybe they've, they've been pregnant multiple times and they've had several cesarean sections and they end up with so much scar tissue 
um, from all the cesarean sections that it would be really hard for them to deliver another child because of all the scar tissue. And they'll tell people, you know, you should really consider a long-acting uh, reversible contraceptive method or, or having a sterilization procedure. Um, women who've had terrible blood pressure issues where it just gets so high, it can affect their liver, it can affect um, their urine protein levels and, and really be very, very dangerous women. I mean, there are situations like that. I mean, I can't even tell you like all the different, there's so many different reasons. Um, well, women have, when pregnant women have um, anatomy scans, you know, I know that there's this popular idea of, oh, we should legislate abortion um, beyond 20 weeks. Women should be allowed to do that. Well, a lot of times we find out a lot about the anatomy at that point during that second trimester ultrasound. And that can be a really important time for women and their partners and their families to decide, okay, is this something that we can sacrifice and can we carry the child, child to term? Can we, will we be able to raise the child? And, you know, this is when it becomes a decision for that individual and that family. They should be able to make decisions about, okay, well, I'm not sure if I want to bring forth this fetus who has a terrible genetic disease that has affected their brain development, heart development, multi-organ issues. Uh, maybe they don't have a spine. Maybe they don't have a fully developed brain. There are so many things that can go wrong um, in this process of women having children that it's it's truly a miracle when everything goes right. Well, you couldn't I I couldn't have said it better myself and I wanted to thank you for your insight uh and and appreciate everything that you do to support public health and women's health, Texans health uh and for speaking up because um you know if everybody did it, it would look a lot different here in the state of Texas. Uh I know that we are nearing the the end of, of your time on the show, and I would love to have you back in the future. But again, thank you so much for sharing your input. Thank you so much for having me, Katie. All right. Good night. Good night. So that was Dr. May Nguyen. She is in family practice in the Houston area. My other guest is Mary Tuma, who is the women's health reporter at the Austin Chronicle. You can find some more from her on the Issues for Your Tissues Facebook page that's linked at coop.org. I wanted to take a quick break and be right back with more Issues for Your Tissues. Welcome back to Issues for Your Tissues. I'm your host, Katie Vitale. I'm excited to be joining you tonight uh, with my guest, Mary Tuma, who is a women's health reporter at the Austin Chronicle. You can find her work at austinchronicle.com or linked at the Issues for Your Tissues Facebook page, which is available if you go to the co-op page and you can link. Just just uh, visit coop.org as, as, often, as often as you like or as often as I'd like you to, which is uh, right now. And you can find out all kinds of information about the show. I promise I'll have the show posted in a few days so you can listen to it on the blog or at iTunes. Uh, I'm looking forward to hearing from all of you and all of your questions uh, related to the special session and the bills that we saw. Um, We've been talking about the, the, the bad and the ugly, but we haven't really mentioned much of the good yet. And I know that uh, there were some things and a few gems, a few highlights that we we shouldn't neglect to mention because as much as we're attempting to stave off the bad, we need to move forward as well. Progress, right? So there were a few uh, remarkable bills filed in the special session. Uh, in fact, 
some regarding or related to the maternal mortality that Dr. Nguyen had uh, mentioned and that we've talked about the show at length in the in the past. Uh, as you guys know, Texas is the most dangerous place for women to give birth in the nation and in the developed world. We're number one for maternal mortality, number one for uninsured uh, adult women. We're number one for uh, those, both of those. And I don't think that it's a coincidence. <laughs> they're not, they're, they're not exclusive. Those things are, um, intricately related. Um, so, uh, Mary, you, you had brought up a great bill that was filed and we had a little bit of success with, can you tell listeners about the efforts to, I guess, Think about maternal mortality more. Is that how we can say it? Yeah, that that's pretty accurate. I mean, um, it was you know it's 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 been on the mind of of some legislators. Let's just put it that way. Um, during regular session, um, there were bills filed um, to extend the life of the task force um, charged with studying the issue, and you know the issue was largely brushed off, right? Um, they, they couldn't even pass a bill to extend the, the task force um, during regular session. So um, uh, one legislature in particular, Rep- Representative Sean Thierry, um, she drafted a letter to Governor Greg Abbott and said, hey, if you call a, sec- if you call a special session, please like, make this a priority. Um, he added it to the call. Um, the bill ended up being SB 17 by Senator Louis Louis cohorts. Um, and it, it does, you know, it does extend the, the, the life of the task force until 2023. So that should be celebrated. Um, however, uh, you know, (laughs) there's always a, however, (laughs) with the women's health, uh, bills in Texas, um, the task force strongly recommended, um, Texas increase access to Medicaid for new moms from 60 days to one year after childbirth. Um, as the majority of, uh, maternal deaths, reviewed occurred after 60 days so sounds like you know a common sense practical tangible thing to do Um, and it was offered by um, democratic legislatures as an amendment to the bill it was ultimately shot down and voted down by the gop dominated ledge and so you know we've come away with a bill that um does in some part do something good but doesn't in you know I think to anyone who's an advocate of women's health, go far enough in really solving this glaring, alarming problem in Texas. Right. Or take action. I mean, like that's, that's a part from like just what you said, here are the things that the committee or the task force has laid out. These are things we can do to stave off, to stop, to slow down, to improve uh, health outcomes for women who are giving birth in the state of Texas, which you think they would like since they're trying to force more women to be giving birth in Texas. And you think they'd like because over 50% of women, I don't know when it's been below 50, but over 50% of women, uh, their births are paid for by Medicaid. Right. And so issues, health issues, complications with the mother, which can often be mean and equate to issues with the infant as well right. or the fetus, are going to be paid for by taxpayers. So right. uh, they, I'm, I'm not understanding the logic. Also, these, these folks who, they're claiming that they, they're all about the, the health and well-being of women, or they were, now they really can't. But uh, these, these folks still allow, you know, more than 100,000 women each year to get little or no prenatal care. So that means uh, having prenatal care 
after the second trimester starts or not at all. Mm -hmm. So it is recommended for women to get prenatal care when they're pregnant. That seems like a a basic, you know? Absolutely. That's common sense. Prenatal, because you should do it before you have the child. Um, Yet, the way that the Medicaid system is set up, even if the woman knows by six weeks and goes to the Medicaid office and does all her 10 pages of paperwork and verification and appointments and gets enrolled in the Medicaid and the S-CHIP or CHIP or whatever she's doing or whatever route they go with her, depending on her status, um, she might not really have coverage until she's well into the second trimester or even the third trimester. Mm-hmm. And not all women find out that they're pregnant at six weeks. Mm-hmm. So if, if it's later, it might just be the third trimester when they get care. So even, even when things go well for women who didn't have coverage before, they're still waiting until the second, third trimester to get care for this, this pregnancy, which is absurd in my mind. Uh, and we've got to be able to do better. And that's just... Uh, you know, I got to chalk it up to the processing of these Medicaid applications. Like, I'm not saying that they should take, well, maybe I am, that they, maybe we should move them up in priority ahead of the others. Uh, but again, I know that anyone who is applying for Medicaid is having some kind of issue and needs to be taken care of. But Texas really isn't taking care of women. And then for it to end 60 days after the birth of a child, Uh, The American College of Obstetrics and Gynecology has found in some studies that only about 40% of of women don't even go for their one follow-up postnatal appointment. So that's, and then there's only one appointment for a woman in that period after birth where she is covered by Medicaid and 40% of them don't get to that one. And then there's nothing. Then they have no kind of follow-up care, no kind of screening, no kind of just nothing. You're on your own. And that's, that's the way Texas has it right now. And then to be surprised that, that we're doing, we're doing so poorly as far as maternal mortality goes. I feel like it's making me physically sick y'all. Yeah. I mean, hopefully, hopefully, you know, uh, the awareness, you know, this is, it's garnered international attention at this point. So, you know, there's a lot of pressure on lawmakers. Perhaps next session they can, you know, do something a little bit more practical, a little bit, take, take more action. So I was getting these things, um, before we had talked earlier, I was getting these things kind of conflated. There was the Maternal Health Task Force, and then there was the, the well, second part. The Women's Health Advisory Committee. So right. that... Um, Abbott basically has disbanded it. I mean, he, he vetoed That's a bill the one he that vetoed yeah. earlier this year, right. right? And so that that organization or that group rather would um, study the issue as well. Um, but and, was that the same group that was advising the Texas Women's Health Program right. on the grants? Right. So I mean, I'm I'm a little like these. Anyhow, go ahead. <laughs> you know, I think on some level, maybe they didn't want, you know, these expert eyes on the destruction that they've caused to women's health because they would, you know, highlight the fact that they've chipped away so heavily at basic health care. Um, you know, you'd have to ask Governor Abbott what his reasons are for, for doing that. But I, I don't think he could list them even <laughs> if he would, uh, you know, take audience with me. 
I have a public information act pending on this. So we'll get back to you if I, I, thank you so much. Yeah. Because that's, that's pretty, uh, uh, pretty telling that he disbanded it. We've, we've talked with members of the task force and on the show in the past and they're, they're the ones who are responsible for giving the advice to, uh, the program that is doling out millions and millions of dollars of state grants to women's health providers who are supposed to be taking up the slack from the decimation of the women's health infrastructure. Gosh, now back from 2011, the 2011 session. Mm-hmm. And right. that, that took effect afterward, and we saw access for hundreds of thousands of women just just done away with, and it's, right. it's not been replaced yet. Absolutely. So... So, so I, I just saw that he had, um, or I remember seeing that he had vetoed that, that group or disbanded mm-hmm. it. Kind of reminds me of the disbanding. That was just, that, we was saw. The hot, that was just the hot word of the day. I right? mean, veto is more accurate. Well, he vetoed in, in order to disband it. So, so now that Texas Women's Health Program is without um, ex- expert guidance mm-hmm. on this. Yeah, and that's, and that's the program that... Um, uh, serves low-income women, and the state kicked Planned Parenthood out a few years ago, and they've never reached the same levels. Um, uh, so, so, the, so the same number of women aren't getting um, health care. Um, Forty-four thousand, I think, fewer women are receiving health care through that program. So, you know, the state's done um, a lot to um, prevent basic um, health care access, and so. If they really want to curb maternal mortality, they really need to start thinking seriously about undoing years and years of um, systematic damage to the healthcare network. So one of the things that we had spoken about earlier in the show was the uh, abortion insurance coverage changes that, that were happening. Um, and I know that a lot of people are calling it rape insurance but I, I don't know if we really drilled it home on why we need to not like. I don't want to call it that because it's not. It's not just about rape. This is any any woman who is, or any per. I'll say any person mm-hmm. who could possibly get pregnant will potentially face have to choose whether or not to carry insurance for a future abortion. So it's not. It's not just about rape, and it's not just about anomalies and it's not just about uh, care for the moms because my gosh all the amendments that were offered to this bill all of them were rejected right yeah so when when we talk about when we talk about this bill uh, is it fair to just call it gender-based discrimination or would they say that no trans Trans men might get pregnant, so it's not gender-based because they're men. Now, like now, they're gonna um, accept that they're men. I, I don't understand. That is probably the most legally uh, sound argument in court, right? So, so this abortion insurance ban, you know, um, it 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 bans the the procedure under private state offered and affordable care act insurance. Um, and, and as I said earlier, you know, forces women to purchase supplemental coverage for the procedure and they would have to somehow predict the need for it. 
Um, but it, you know, it actually, other states have employed this. So there's other states that are doing this. Um, and I think the, the, the strongest way to combat it legally is, is to claim gender discrimination, which it, I think it very, very much is right. Right. Yeah. Um, yeah, because also, you know, like there's, there's privacy an element of privacy involved mm -hmm. and an element of, um, uh, this is, I have, in, in cases, especially when we're talking about exchange where people are paying out of pocket for their insurance or in plans that you get through your job, mm -hmm. that you are working and this is compensation in exchange mm -hmm. for your work. Mm -hmm. This is basically reducing the value of the thing that the woman has bought and not of other people. Like they can't, like I said before, they can't make that Hobby Lobby argument where they can say that the, it wasn't gender-based discrimination because men couldn't get the contraception <laughs> either. Like, uh, okay, so you, that it was really hard for me to to uh, accept, but in this case, they really can't make make that kind of uh, weirdo argument. Um, there are there are a number of reasons, like Doctor Nguyen was saying, that women might need. Uh, an abortion and the legislature just seemed to dismiss each of those. Can, can you talk about the different amendments that were offered? I, I certainly can. Um, right on, on the house and Senate floor, um, Democrats, several Democrats offered amendments, um, to the, the, the bill that would make exceptions for, for survivors of rape and incest and sexual assault and for severe fetal abnormalities. They spoke with passion. They offered statistics on sexual assault. Um, and, you know, each time they offered an amendment, the author of the bill, uh, both in the House and Senate, said, sorry, I, I just you know, want to keep it as is. I want to keep the bill as is. So there was no real, you know, um, strong argument against it. It was just, I just want to keep the bill as is. And it really was, you know, I've seen a lot of um, lack of compassion at the ledge, and this was another real low point. I was really shocked when, well, like I got to moderate my, my shock at this point, because if I'm shocked every time I should be, then... Right. I don't think I would be very functional. Right. Um, but still, we don't want to be, you know, complacent or um, blasé about this because it really is. It's insulting and it's an affront to the bodily autonomy and the decision making and moral agency of every woman in Texas. Uh, for him to say, well, my grandchild, I, that part really got me. My grandchild had a, a fetal anomaly and they're fine. And it's like, oh, so not, not a doctor. You think all fetal anomalies are the thing that your grandchild had and there's no other case like the, unlike that. And they're all the same and they're all going to be just fine because your kid was, or your grandkid was just fine. Like that is some narcissistic. I'm, I, I, I'm really censoring myself here. That is some prime <laughs> narcissism to think that everyone's case is just like yours and be wholly unaware of any or not even accept the idea that there could be something that different that could be bad that could happen. Right. Yeah. So it, it was really shocking to see the, the nastiness that I perceived it as nastiness of not just Smithy, but of, um, of all the other Republicans that were behind him, especially 
the ladies. Can we talk about that? Like he had surrounded himself with with a crew of white ladies, and it it was striking to me. I think the male Republican legislators have uh, learned what optics are. Um, after after many screenshot of the huddle of um, men talking about uh, reproductive health, so they um, surrounded themselves this time with uh, uh, women. Republican legislatures um, while they were propping up these anti-choice bills so they could at least say, hey, we have some women on our side. This lady um, likes it, so right. all ladies like it. Again, right. the narcissism. And to sort of sort of counter the, the story you, you just offered and that Smithy offered, um, you know, I talked to an Austin couple here, a local couple, um, that... Um, they when they were when the woman was 20 21 weeks pregnant they found out they found um, that the fetus had a severe abnormality um and would not survive birth they were recommended to terminate the pregnancy and um through a complication she ended up in the icu for seven days you know this is something that could happen to any any woman any couple anyone um and they ended up um having to pay sixty four thousand dollars. um but the insurance because they both had insurance um, covered 90% of it, right? But under this piece of legislation, that would not be the case. So people on, on top of the trauma, mental, physical, they would be slapped with this surprise, you know, giant medical bill. Because a lot of people don't know, you know, if their insurance covers abortion or not. And under this bill, another kind of um, scary thing about it is that it it doesn't require insurers to tell the 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 client that they don't offer it. So you know you could you could really find yourself in a in a very terrible you know situation. Yeah, I, the cost of abortions, as um, like people talk about abortion clinics, Planned Parenthoods, or independent clinics as being abortion mills. We're only in it for the money, and I I promise you guys, the the cost of an abortion has not increased. Uh, the inflation has not been the same for that as it has for all other health care. Like the the cost of an abortion has has been maintained as as low as possible at these providers, um, in part because they care about women's health and women's access to these services, and it's not gone up the way it has or the way hospital prices have. And if you find yourself at a hospital, even early into your pregnancy, not even in the, um, tw- not even at 21 weeks, you're talking over $5,000 for a procedure that, that is necessary to protect your health. And the legislature, um, Smithy, had rejected the amendment that would have covered that or would have maintained coverage for that family that you just talked about. So um, that was some of the excuses I heard from Republicans afterward. They're like, oh, this this will take care of it. No, no, it won't. This won't allow that. You have to be physically dying. You have to, there has to be, you have to be about to die before they would allow that. And that's too late. Mm-hmm. That's, that's when they're, that's a bad, let's just call that a bad outcome. Can we, can we accept that that's a bad outcome and we shouldn't have had to wait until that point? Like that family, if they couldn't have afforded it, they would have had to like hang out with this pregnancy right. to the detriment of her health, right. of her fertility, of her mental well-being, uh, emotional well-being, mm-hmm. and his as well, mm-hmm. and their financial well-being. They just don't care. They, I, don't, I don't see any way around it. So we've talked 
at length about this uh, abortion insurance prohibition. We've talked about the uh, attempts to block funding for Planned Parenthood, and we talked about the um, enhanced reporting requirements with legislative bullying. Is that what you called it? Bureaucratic bullying. That's right. It is bullying uh, of, of folks. And we talked a little bit about the, or at length about the Maternal Mortality Task Force and Women's Health Advisory Committee. Um, were there any other good bills or things that we can do just to, to end on a, on a better, higher note? Or can we <laughs> try to give you some good news here, Katie? Please. Um, well, I guess what I would say um, is that, you know, during the regular session that the omnibus, the package bill, SB8, which the most egregious part of that bill, oh. anti-choice bill, um, banned the, the, the safest and most common form of second trimester abortion, D&E, um, and that has been challenged in court. And as we've seen with the U.S. Supreme Court, um, you know, victory is on the side of pro-choice advocates and abortion providers. So... Um, there's the, a hearing in a week and a half or a couple weeks from now. So um, we'll see what happens then. Hopefully that's the high note I can leave you on. I hope so. I'm, I'm looking forward to some high notes and, and uh, some good, good results to some challenges because we got, we got a few going on. There's, there's this. There's, uh, and then we have also a fetal funeral challenge that's uh, ongoing and uh, we'll definitely keep listeners updated on that as as it as it develops, uh, and let you guys know all about it. Uh, w- let's see. Um, if I'm trying to remember, oh, so there was the the court hearing where um, the uh, this fetal funeral regulation was blocked, mm-hmm. and it was blocked twice. Yes, and the state had asked or has now appealed that that yes. blockage. So I think it's going to be a, a slow road, but uh, as in Indiana, I'm hopeful that this never sees um, action. Absolutely. Or when I say action, gets implemented, I mean, right? Right, and then a federal judge um, did call it a pretext for restricting abortion, really slammed it down, um, and it was a very strong opinion. So we'll see how that factors in. And that's going to be, uh, it's going to be an exciting uh, session for SCOTUS, uh, for... And appeal court, appellate courts and district appeals courts don't have the same kind of terms, right? Are they, do they take the summer off the same way SCOTUS does? <laughs> they, uh, yeah, I think they wish they, they could take it off, yeah. <laughs> right. So uh, we have those things to look forward to. And hopefully the Maternal Mortality Task Force will have some ideas that might be more palatable to legislators in the 2019 session. Yeah, hopefully, hopefully. I'm kind of sad that we're going to have to wait two years, more than two years now, to see action on the things that have been affecting Texas women for years already. Uh, It's upsetting. And hopefully one of the things we might see in 2019 is uh, an amendment to the process by which Medicaid is um, Medicaid cases are approved, so that women can start to get prenatal care. You know, maybe in the first trimester, it would be great. Right? Yeah. Um, is there anything that you wanted to share that you're writing right now or working on? Um, any 
uh, sneak peeks or or anything that you wanted to share with listeners to keep an eye out for in the next chronicle um well some non-women's health related things but um uh, I don't know if I can share them, but um, I would say keep keep an eye out for pending litigation. It's going to be a litigious <laughs> summer. I mean, we've had lawsuits with us before, which is the anti-immigrant, um, you know, papers plea style bill. So um, we're waiting on a ruling um, on that and um, this the lawsuit I just mentioned against SB8. So keep an eye out for um, court rulings, I would say. Yeah, <laughs> I, I'm excited about that. Uh, and anything else that you wanted to share with listeners about special session reflections on uh, the work of progressive or not progressive legislators or uh, the process? I think um, I think you know Democrats really brought it in terms of standing up for women um, as they do. They're they're always outnumbered. Um, activist groups came in full force as they always do, um, and you know everyone gave it their all. But um, you know when you're led by an anti-choice governor, an anti-choice lieutenant governor, um, sometimes the odds are against you, but they still put up a hell of a fight. Thank you so much for joining me tonight, Mary, and uh, thanks to everyone who worked to hold the ground. Thank you so much for having me, Katie. Uh, And good night, you guys.